in a word of prayer, and uh, we can get into our study. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning, and Lord, we just give you praise for another opportunity to come uh, to worship you, to come and hear your word. Pray, Lord, that you would bless our study. Pray that you would just be with us as we uh, study Daniel, as we get into the truths that you have for us here, and we thank you, Lord, for the way that you used uh, this man in, in mighty ways. Uh, just pray, Lord, that uh, this time would be honoring and glorifying to you. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Back in Daniel chapter 2 this morning. If you'll please turn there. In the, in the, I feel like I should move the podium this way because there's nobody over here. Um, in the first chapter of Daniel, back several weeks ago, we were introduced to the man, Daniel. We got a good glimpse of his character, his conviction, his commitment. And in our time this morning, we'll continue to see some of those traits, many of those traits, um, in this fine young man. Now, while Daniel was a man that we can look up to, and in chapter 1, and even in our, our study today, um, we see things that we can look to emulate in our own lives from his character he was also a man that God used in a, in a mighty way to bring us great truths of future events. And that's probably something that a lot of people think of right off when they think of Daniel. Through Daniel, God has revealed great truths of human history that are essential for understanding most of the prophetic portions of Scripture. Through Daniel, God has revealed events that will unfold among Gentile nations as well as among the nation of Israel stretching across a period that began in 600 B.C. and continues on today and will ultimately be realized in its fullest at the second coming of Christ. And this entire period is, is the period of time that Jesus referred to as the times of the Gentiles in Luke chapter 21. It is the period of time when the nation of Israel will be dominated by Gentile nations. And that period began with the deportation of the youths of Jerusalem, of which Daniel uh, was, a, was a part of that. Now, from that time until now, the nation of Israel has never had its complete independence again. Even today, while they are a nation, they do not have complete control of the land. They do not have complete control of all that God promised them as far as the land goes. And they have conflict with the surrounding nations at all times. They are always on guard. This will continue for them in some way, shape, or form until Jerusalem returns, or until, sorry, until Jesus returns to the earth to establish his kingdom and restore the nation of Israel to its rightful place as God's chosen people. The book of Daniel gives us insight into this time. It shows us the plan that God has for this period of time. And this is very important, vital piece of God's prophetic picture. The book of Revelation wouldn't be understandable without the revelation given to Daniel. Jesus, when given, giving further prophecy about the end times in Matthew chapter 24, uses Daniel as his starting point to add more information. The book of Daniel is really essential to understanding the end times and the future course of human history. So here in the second chapter, we will see some of this prophecy unfold and as Daniel is allowed to give us insight into the truth that God revealed to him. Now before we get into the text of chapter 2, keep in mind what we saw at the very end of chapter 1. Daniel and his three friends had come out of the king's indoctrination program, brainwashing program, if you will, with flying colors. They had been in a three-year program studying the Chaldean literature, and through the sovereignty of God, they had risen to the very top of their class. We were told in verse 17 of Daniel chapter 1 that Daniel could even understand visions and dreams, which will turn out to be very important in this chapter. And, and keep in mind, he wasn't able to do that because he studied the Chaldean literature. That was a gift from God. But look with me at, look with me at verse 18 of chapter 1 real quick where it said, Then at the end of the days which the king had specified for presenting them, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king talked with them, and out of them all, not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's personal service. 
And so here they are, in personal service to the king, put into a prominent position in the nation of Babylon, and their wisdom and their understanding, it said, were ten times better than the magicians and the conjurers, the other wise men of Babylon. So we have the setup. These are now part of the wise men of Babylon. Daniel and his friends are part of the wise men of Babylon, which is going to play a very key role in the first part here of chapter 2. Now, chapter 2 has 49 verses, and we are not going to get through 49 verses today, but we will get through a large portion of them. What we're going to do today is we're going to spend our time looking at the events that lead up to the details of the king's dream that he'll have, and this will take place really in the first 30 verses. And so we'll have to leave the dream itself for our next study. But look with me starting in verse 1 of Daniel 2. Now in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams and his spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Now the verse starts off with telling us that this is the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. Now right off the bat, this is something that causes some people some trouble. And the reason that it causes trouble is because in the last chapter, Nebuchadnezzar the king put Daniel and his friends through a three-year program. How could they have finished a three-year program under Nebuchadnezzar, which we just saw, and now in chapter 2, verse 1, we have something that takes place here in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. Well, some say that this indicates that this took place during the three-year program that Daniel was, was in, but I don't think that fits well with the details because of the role that Daniel has here. It's more likely that this takes place shortly after the end of the king's program. Well, how does that work? If it was a three-year program, how does this happen in Nebuchadnezzar's second year? Well, there's a couple reasons that it works. First of all, the Babylonians considered the first year of a king's reign as his ascension year. They didn't consider that his first year. They called it the ascension or accession year. Um, So his second year was really three years in. Have you ever been to... England, I don't know if Europe does this as well, but you know how they number their floors? They have the ground floor, and then the next floor up is the first floor, and then the second floor, which we have first floor, second floor. We do it right. They, they do it the funny way, right? So anyway, but that's how they kind of did their, um, their, their years of a king's rule. So it was the accession year, first year, second year. Another thing to keep in mind is that Nebuchadnezzar was not king when he took Daniel and his friends captive. He was on his way back to Babylon because his father, Nabopolassar, was dying. So the three-year program could very well have started prior to him actually taking the throne. Therefore, there's really no problem with saying that these events are taking place after the three-year program while it's in the second year still of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. So what happens in Nebuchadnezzar's second year? Well, it says, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. So the king has these dreams, but they weren't just any dreams. These were nightmares, right? These were dreams that were so troubling that he woke up and he couldn't get back to sleep. The word for troubled here is a very strong word. It's a word that means a deep disturbance. He was quite upset about these dreams. And we'll see from his reactions in the coming verses that he was, he's almost in a panic over these dreams. He was very alarmed by what he dreamed. Now, the Chaldeans were big into dreams. Dreams were not taken lightly. They were seen as something that was very significant. And as we'll see, they had a whole group that was devoted to interpreting dreams, right? That was kind of their bread and butter. That's what they did. And they considered themselves to be experts at interpreting dreams. And as I understand it, archaeologists have even found Babylonian dream books, where dreams were written down and stored for future reference and, and as a way to interpret future dreams. You know, somebody has this dream book, and this was the dream, and this is what happened afterwards, and so they would use these to determine what might happen in the future when somebody has a specific dream. So when the king has a dream that disturbs him, and it disturbs him enough that he wakes up and he cannot go back to sleep, then in this culture... In his mind, it's not time to go get a glass of warm milk and try to get back to sleep. It's time to figure out what does this dream mean? What's going on here? 
And so in verse 2, we see what he does next. Then the king gave orders to call in the magicians, the conjurers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and they stood before the king. So in light of these dreams, he rounds up the think tank here. He calls in the experts. And we're not told the exact timing. So this may have been the next morning, the following morning. But it seems to me like I don't think he would have waited for this. I think he, this was right away. I just had a very disturbing dream. I need to know what this dream means right now. I woke up. I can't sleep. I want to find out what this, what's going on here. So call in the dream guys. Call in everyone. And he's, he's the king, right? He's greatly disturbed by this. What does he care if he calls and wakes everybody up in the middle of the night, right? He's like, oh, that's sad. I'm really troubled. I need, I'll wait, and, I'll wait so it's, until it's convenient for everyone. No. He's going to call everybody in as soon as he possibly can. But regardless of the timing, he brings in these wise men. And he doesn't hold back. He doesn't just say, bring in someone that can represent this. Bring in someone that can tell me what this is. He brings in all of these, right? The, the wise men. We have four distinct groups of guys that he brings in to interpret this. And they all did different things. But he calls them all in, and they are all associated with with the occult and, and different cultic practices. These are all distinct groups here. He calls in magicians. Magicians could be seen as either fortune tellers or scholars. Uh, back in those days, fortune teller or scholar was really one and the same. There wasn't a whole lot of difference between the two groups. Conjurers are probably best seen as astrologers. Those that got their information by reading the stars, right? These would be the ones that could tell you your horoscope, could look at the star charts or whatever and, and try to tell you what's going on. Sorcerers were the ones that were heavily into use of drugs, and they claimed that they had the ability to speak to the dead, kind of like those that perform seances today. And then we have the Chaldeans, and these, these were the leaders of the group, Right? These were probably the most educated. They end up doing all of the talking for this collection of wise men. The Chaldeans were the real scholars. Remember the youths from Judah, when they, were, when they were brought back into their training program, they were taught the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. The term Chaldean was a term that came to represent the, the education system in Babylon. And so they were the wisest of the wise. They were kind of the, the, the leaders of the group of wise men. And so now if you put all these together, you have all these groups, you have everyone that represents the wise men of Babylon here. And so Nebuchadnezzar co covers all of his bases. He wants this dream figured out, and he wants all hands on deck to be able to figure out what's going on with this dream that I just had. Verse 3, And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to understand the dream. Tells them what he wants, right? I, I had this dream, and I want to know what it means. He tells them that this dream greatly troubled his spirit. The word there for anxious, my spirit is anxious, that's the same word that was used for troubled in verse 1. So this was a very troubling dream, and he tells them that. Verse 4, he says, says then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell the dream to your servants, and we will declare the interpretation. Here they are. This is, this is how they earn their keep, right? They're, they're ready for this task, they think. Live forever. That's the standard greeting for a king, right? Long live the king. We've all heard that, that phrase. They're confident here that they're going to be able to help him out, right? They're, they're standing in front of the king, so they muster up all their pomp and circumstance for this event. They're ready to consult their dream books. They have their star charts organized, they have their crystal balls, whatever it is that they use to do the voodoo that they do. Um, and so they're, they're ready for this challenge. Just another day at the office. Now, before we get into the account, before we get into what they do and how, what the response is here, there's an interesting thing that happens beginning with verse 4. Daniel tells us here that the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic. Now, at first, we might just glance over this. Okay, that's, that's what they say, right? That's how they speak. They just speak in Aramaic and not really give it a second thought. But this here starts a major section of the book of Daniel. From this point 
in verse 4 of chapter 2 all the way through the end of chapter 7, the book of Daniel is not written in Hebrew, but it's written in Aramaic. Aramaic was the legal language of the world in this time. It was the language of the courts. It was the educated language, if you will. But more importantly, it was a Gentile language. The significance of this has to do with the contents of what's in chapters 2 through 7. Within these chapters, God reveals prophecy that deals not only with the nation of Israel, but also for the whole world. In fact, it is meant for Gentiles to understand as well. And I would say that's especially true with regards to the church. These are things that we need to understand. Obviously, we need to understand all of Scripture. But these are things that, as, as the church, the Gentile church, we need to take special note of these things. So this language choice has significance in that both groups, Jews and Gentiles, are in view in these chapters, not just the nation of Israel. But the primary focus throughout these six chapters is on this time of the Gentile nation's dominance over Israel, the times of the Gentiles that I mentioned earlier on. And we're going to start to see that when we get to the details of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, a dream that will have implications for the rest of human history, all the way up until the time that God establishes his kingdom on the earth, who does God see fit to give this dream to? In chapter 2, he doesn't give this dream to Daniel, not directly, but he gives this dream to the king of Babylon. He gives it to a pagan king, a king from a city and a nation that are synonymous with pagan worship all the way from the time of the Tower of Babel throughout history up until the events prophesied in the book of Revelation. Babylon is a key player throughout history in in a bad way, right? God is speaking to the world here. These things are for the world to understand. Now, we will keep in mind that although this was given to the Gentile king, it was given to Nebuchadnezzar, God still uses his chosen man, Daniel, to bring the interpretation of this dream to light. And we see that starting in verse 5, because the wisest men of Babylon aren't going to be able to do what the king of Babylon wants them to do. So it says in verse 5, The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The command from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you will be torn limb from limb, and your houses will be made a rubbish heap. But if you declare the dream and its interpretation, you will receive from me gifts and a reward and great honor. Therefore, declare to me the dream and its interpretation. The king says to the Chaldeans right off, the command from me is firm. Now, some translations say something different. The King James, for instance, says, this thing is gone from me. There are two possibilities of what this phrase actually means. Um, And as I understand it, it stems from a difficult translation of a certain Aramaic word, a word which can either mean gone or sure. And if you think about that, that's a, that's a big difference between what the word can mean, that something is gone or something is sure or certain. Most translations have it as meaning sure here. So like uh, I have New American Standard, it says the command for me is firm. So the idea could be that the king is giving them a command that there's no question about, right? This is his first command to them, or firm command to them. But another view is that the king might have forgotten his own dream. Which would, go, which would show support for the word meaning gone, if it was the really the Aramaic word for gone. So there are really pros and cons to both views here. But when it finally comes down to it, it really doesn't matter all that much. The wise men are on the hook for telling the king his dream, whether he remembered it or not. But I lean more towards the view that the king actually forgot what his dream was. And he doesn't have a clear picture of what it is in his mind. Um, And that's actually part of his troubled state. And I don't know if you've ever, I mean, I'm sure we've all had dreams, right? But sometimes you wake up and you have a dream that was particularly frightening or particularly even, even a pleasant dream, and you wake up and you're like, 
I know that it did something to me, and, and I know that it, was, it made me react a certain way, but I can't really remember the details of the dream. And I don't know if that's exactly what Nebuchadnezzar was going through here. Obviously, this was more of a, a supernatural type of event that was going on. Um, but he was in this troubled state, and he probably could not remember his dream. And there are a few reasons that I think forgetting the dream actually fits the context better here. The first reason I think it fits the context better is because forgetting such a troubling dream would add to his concern. One commentator mentioned that in Eastern cultures, forgetting a dream of great importance was, a, was considered a bad omen. It was a sign that the gods were displeased with you. So for Nebuchadnezzar to wake up and have his spirit be so troubled and not even be able to remember what troubled him in the first place added to his panic, added to his troubled state. Another reason I think it fits better is that with the king being so disturbed over this, it hardly seems like the time that he'd be interested in playing games with his wise men. Now, if as the text indicates, he was as troubled as it appears, I find it unlikely that he would play this guess-what-my-dream-was game, right? Because that's really what he does with the wise men. Tell me what my dream was. If he wants to know what this dream means, or I mean, he does want to know what this dream means, that's his primary concern here. And so one would think that he'd be more willing to relate the dream to see if his people could tell him what it really meant rather than tell me what my dream was. I know what my dream was, but I want to see if you know what my dream was. In chapter 4, for instance, when he has his next dream, and he says that dream is alarming him too, he calls in his wise men again, and he immediately relates the dream to them And that, at that point in time. He remembers the dream then, and he tells them what the dream was. You'd think that if he was interested in testing them once, then after their first failure, he'd be even more eager to test them again when it comes to chapter 4. But he doesn't do that. He, there, he just wants the dream interpreted. And a third reason I think that it makes sense that the king forgot his dream was because God wants the entire nation of Babylon to understand who is really revealing and interpreting what here. God gave this dream to Nebuchadnezzar in the first place. And so by allowing him to remember just enough of it to make him concerned, this gives God's man Daniel the opportunity to shine here. This gives God the opportunity, or God takes the opportunity, to put Daniel in the forefront here and be the man of the hour. This dream will only be revealed to the one that God wants it revealed to. So the dream and its prophecy is given to the Gentile king, but it is only fully revealed through God's chosen man. And therefore, God alone is going to be known to be the revealer of this dream. So I believe that Nebuchadnezzar doesn't remember his dream, which is why he reacts like he does. What does he tell them? You tell me what my dream was and what it means. How do you suppose the look on their faces changed when that's what he asked them to do, when that's what he told them to do? Don't just tell me the interpretation. You have to tell me what my dream was in the first place. And furthermore, he tells them, if you don't, I'm going to tear you to pieces and turn your homes into a rubbish pile, he says. They're going to be torn limb from limb, and their homes will be torn, uh, turned down and turned into outhouses, which is really what that means. And as silly as that sounds, that sounds like something just, somebody just flying off the handle and throwing out some, you know, the worst thing that they can possibly say, right? But as silly as that may sound, that was actually done back in those times. That was seen as a sign of humility humiliation. You tore down someone's house and you made, it a, you made it an outhouse, or whatever the equivalent was of that back then, um, to humiliate and completely discredit that family or that person. But if you do this, he says, if you do tell me what this is, I'll reward you greatly. You'll get gifts, you'll get rewards, you'll get honor. So they really have two options here. Death and humiliation or great reward. And their, their lives are going to be changed here one way or the other um, from this dream. So the wise men have been a little bit of a bind. Maybe they heard him wrong. What are they going to say to that request? What would we, we say to that request, right? Well, when all else fails, just pretend like you didn't hear it. And ask the same question again. Look at verse 7. 
They answered a second time and said, let the king tell the dream to his servants and we will declare the interpretation. It really takes a lot of guts for someone to ask the king the same question twice, right? But really, what other choice do they have? Their books didn't, didn't contain this kind of information. The stars didn't reveal the dreams that the dead couldn't tell them this stuff, right? I mean, they couldn't make this up. For them to make any attempt at this, the king had to tell them the dream first. Because the wise men know that they, they can't answer this type of question. They can't tell him what he wants here. And in verse 8, we see that the king knows what's going on as well, right? He says, the king answered in verse 8 and said, I know for certain that you are bargaining for time inasmuch as you have seen that the command from me is firm or the thing is gone. Right? He tells them, you're stalling for time. I know that. I've already told you that I've forgotten the dream. Nebuchadnezzar sees that they're trying to put it back on him. Since he's forgotten the dream and they keep asking for the dream, they're trying to show him that, that there's an impasse. That, right? They stand their ground. Well, we, you need to tell us the dream. And there is an impasse here, but he's not about to accept that from them as a valid excuse. Right? He, he's, he's the king. He doesn't have to accept anything from them. And he doesn't back down from what he said before, verse 9, that if you do not make the dream known to me, there is only one decree for you. I've already told you what's going to happen. The two options are already known. You already know what you need to do. You know, I think what we're seeing here is that Nebuchadnezzar has doubts about his own system, his own uh, dream interpreters. I don't think he's convinced about this dream stuff at all. And that's basically what he tells them in the next part of verse 9, where he says, For you have agreed together to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the situation is changed. Therefore, tell me the dream that I may know that you can declare to me its interpretation. You see, he thinks they're all a bunch of liars and cheats anyway. He sees through the facade here. If they aren't corrupt, if they aren't liars, then now is the time for them to prove it, right here and now. Tell me what I'm asking. Tell me what I need to know. So what do you think they're going to do? Verse 10. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who could declare the matter for the king, inasmuch as no great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of any magician, conjurer, or Chaldean. Moreover, the thing which the king demands is difficult, and there is no one else who could declare it to the king except God's, whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. You know what I think we have here? I think we probably have the first truthful and wise thing that these, king, that these guys have ever said. They are absolutely right. There is no man on earth who could do what the king is asking for here. And there is no one but the gods, or as we know, God himself, who could declare the king's dream to him. And furthermore, they tell the king that he's being unreasonable. Right? No great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this. You can't ask this of us. No one would ask such a thing of their wise men. They are flat out acknowledging, without even really realizing it, that their system can't do this. It's not as great of a system as they had made it out to be. Well, how do you think the king took this? Nebuchadnezzar, the reasonable man that he was, thought about it a minute, came to realization that he's being unreasonable, thanked them for their time. You guys are right. I'm being silly, right? Go ahead and go home. I'll we'll just forget about it. No. Verse 12, because of this, the king became indignant and very furious and gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. I, I love this here. He's not just enraged, he's also furious. And he's not just enraged and furious, he's enraged and very furious. He's really mad. He's really, really mad. You don't talk to the king like that. You don't tell the king no. You don't tell the king he's being unreasonable. You don't fail the king's orders. And they had just done all of that. The king's already in a panic. He's already disturbed by this. And also, keep in mind, Nebuchadnezzar didn't get a good night's sleep, right? So he's already grouchy from that as well. So in other words, he's very, very angry. Kill them all. Kill all the wise men of Babylon. 
You know, that's one of the problems of making decisions in a state of anger, isn't it? They tend to be irrational. They tend to have far-reaching consequences that can get out of hand. And we see that at times, but maybe sometimes we do that at times, and it never ends well. Well, just think about the king doing that, the king of Babylon doing that, and that's what we see here. Here, Nebuchadnezzar makes his decision in a fit of rage, and he declares that all the wise men in Babylon are going to be killed. Just kill them all. Get rid of them. We'll start over. And how far does this go? Look at verse 13. So the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain, and they looked for Daniel and his friends to kill them. Right? Because Daniel and his friends were part of the system now. So this decree goes forth, the king has spoken, and the king's will is going to be done here. So they're going out looking for all of the wise men. And so this is where Daniel and his friends get involved. Well, remember, they're involved because at the end of the program in chapter 1, they entered into the king's personal service, right? They became a part of the group of wise men, even being ten times wiser than the others. So they were on the list. They weren't even part of the original party that visited the king, apparently, right? But that didn't matter because now they're involved. They most likely didn't come in before the king before because they were, you know, they'd just gotten out of this program. They were probably in some type of apprenticeship. Maybe they had them, you know, filing papers or, you know, polishing crystal balls or whatever it was that they had them do. They had some other role, but they weren't part of that circle. So they're someplace else. So as we come to verse 14, we have Daniel and his friends that now get involved in this issue. And we're going to see, once again, the remarkable character of Daniel in in times of testing. So here comes the king's guards coming, uh, really, to get Daniel and his friends and put them to death. And we're going to see how Daniel reacts in this situation. Verse 14, Then Daniel replied with discretion and discernment to Arioch, the captain of the king's bodyguard, who had gone forth to slay the wise men of Babylon. So you look here at what he does. Daniel replies with discretion and discernment, it says. Here comes Arioch. Arioch was the captain of the king's bodyguard. This was the king's main guy. He personally comes and finds Daniel. Now there's no question as to why he's there. And we see here that Daniel replies to him. So we know that this is in response to the coming of Arioch. Plus, we'll see as we look at the response that he's fully aware that Arioch is there to kill him. So as an 18-year-old captive in a foreign land, when the captain of the king's bodyguard shows up at your door to tear you limb from limb, how would you respond? This would not be a calm time for most people, right? The king was on a rampage. His troops were combing the streets out in force to seek out and kill all the wise men that they can find. Not a good time to be on the king's radar. Not a good time to be someone that the king had taken notice of as a particularly wise man, as he had done with Daniel and his friends, because the king's blaming them all. And yet Daniel responds, it says here, with discretion and discernment. He He speaks appropriately, with wisdom, with composure, with reason, as he's talking to the guy who's there to kill him. He doesn't panic, he doesn't fear, he has great composure in the light of this potential tragedy, and he speaks to this man in a very calm and a very rational way. He has a calmness. He has a peace about what's going on that shows his reliance on the Lord, shows his faith in God, right? This reminds me of what Jesus tells his disciples in Luke chapter 12, verses 4 and 5, where he says, And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. The point that Jesus is making here is that the effect that men can have on us is limited. They can hurt us. They can even kill us. But in the end, as those who have a sure salvation as children of the living God, that's all that they can do. In our case, as believers in Jesus Christ, we know that there is nothing that anyone can do to us that will jeopardize our internal relationship with the Lord in any way. And therefore, what do we have to fear? 
And that's how we ought to live our lives, with that kind of realization every day. And Daniel had that kind of realization based on God's promises to the nation of Israel. God had promised Israel over and over again, I will not fail you, I will not forsake you. And that's no doubt what Daniel has called to mind here as well. Why would he be concerned about this? To his reply in verse 15. He answered and said to Arioch, the king's commander, for what reason is the decree from the king so urgent? Here he is questioning the king's captain. I know you're here to kill me, but why, is, why the rush? Why is this so urgent? You know, Here's Daniel questioning the executioner as he comes. Maybe over the last three years, Daniel had become acquainted with Arioch. We saw that with Ashpenaz uh, in the last chapter, that God had given him a fondness for Daniel. Perhaps there were others in the king's court that this was true of as well. Daniel might have known him. But whatever the case, Daniel has the boldness to question Arioch. And what does Arioch do? It says, then Arioch informed Daniel about the matter. He tells him. He talks to him about this. God was working in this guy's heart. Does does he have to tell Daniel anything? He's been given instructions to kill this guy. Does he have to explain anything to Daniel? No. But he does, and that's what he does here. And so, um, but here it gets even better. Look at verse, verse 16. So Daniel went in and requested of the king that he would give him time in order that he might declare the interpretation to the king. Daniel hears the explanation from the executioner, and his next step is to go in and see the king. He gets an audience with the king of Babylon. Not only does Arioch find favor with him, but he apparently grants him an audience with Nebuchadnezzar. And there's some definite boldness on Daniel's part here. We saw before that he had the composure in the face of potential danger, and now he goes beyond that. He also has courage here as well. There isn't a lot of detail given here. In fact, he said there's no detail given here. We have no idea what the, the, what the exchange between Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar was in that instance. But Daniel has the courage to walk in and ask for more time to do the very thing that the others couldn't do, and he's given time to do this. On Daniel's part, that's some pretty hefty confidence. He shows a great deal of courage. Uh, so Daniel here is putting it all out on the line. Why? Well, it's not because Daniel thinks that he can do this. It's not because Daniel is confident in his own wisdom or because he has a certain amount of belief in himself. He's convinced that God can do this. Daniel knew that God had given him the ability to interpret dreams and visions, and therefore he could approach the king with boldness, asking for an opportunity to reveal this dream to him. And the source of Daniel's boldness is seen in the next two verses. Verse 17 says, Then Daniel went to his house and informed his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, about the matter. So stop there for a second. Daniel comes back from his meeting with the king and tells Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah what's going on. Most likely, he's not, in telling, he's not giving them something they, they don't know as far as them being on the chopping block. But he's, he's letting them know that the king's given us time, Right? He's informing them about his exchange with the king and the time they've been granted. Um, And you note that they don't use this time to say, great, we have time, let's get out of here. No, that's not what they do. Um, Look at the rest of, uh, or look at verse 18. He informed his friends in order that they might request compassion from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his friends might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Daniel came back and informed his friends, not so that they could get away, not so that they could, great, I stalled the king, let's get out of here. That's not what they do. But but he comes back and he informs his friends so that they can pray. They can have a prayer meeting. They girded up for battle by getting down on their knees and asked God for wisdom that they needed in this situation. That's the first thing that they do. In fact, that's the only thing that they do. They don't seek outside counsel. They don't get the other wise men together for some type of emergency meeting. Great, I've got the king to give us more time. Now, guys, get together. What are we going to do? He doesn't go to the veterans of the group. They, 
they know that's where the wisdom that they need is not going to come from. I think this is good for us to, uh, to see because I think believers too often have a tendency to think that the Bible is great for learning about God and stuff, but when it comes to quote-unquote real problems, we need real answers. We don't always go to God in his word for those answers. We try to find books, we try to find articles, we try to find websites that have answers to the real world problems. Well, what do Daniel and his friends do here? I mean, they were literally in a life and death situation here. The king of Babylon was looking to destroy them along with all the other wise men. That's a pretty real world situation that they were in. And their first thought is to request compassion from God. Get down and pray about this very real situation. They sought wisdom from God. Seeking out God's wisdom ought to be our first thought in times of crisis and in times of need. Not something that we do when all else fails. Well, how did God answer their prayers? Look at the beginning of verse 19. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. They prayed into the night. The Lord revealed the mystery to Daniel in a night vision, it says. I'm guessing that there was quite a bit of time that they spent praying. Um, they go praying into the night. It didn't come immediately to them. Um, but they spent quite a bit of time, right? They were praying and praying, and finally it's revealed to them in a, in a vision of some sort. Um, here, here's the thing that's key. Um, Daniel is given this, this vision. Daniel is given this answer that he's seeking. And we see that in the next verse, in verse 20, what he does, or at the end of verse 19, what he does here. What does he do next? Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. He gets the answer, and the very next thing he does, Daniel blesses the God of heaven. Now think about this for just a second. Put this again in the real world category. If you had to provide an answer to someone that would save your life, as well as the lives of many other people, what would be the first thing that you would do upon receiving the information that you got? For most people, I would hazard to guess that they would make every effort to answer the question as soon as they got that bit of information, wouldn't they? As soon as you can answer the question, you'd be making a beeline for the king in Daniel's case. Oh, I just got the information. Let me go see the king. But Daniel doesn't do that. He takes the time to praise God and thank him for providing the answer. Look at verse 20. Daniel answered and said, Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. And it is he who changes the times and the epics. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. Daniel gives praise to God. He blesses his name. We get some really good insight into God in these verses, in this prayer that Daniel has. Here he praises God for his great and awesome power over all things. This is his sovereignty. He is in charge of it all. God is the one who changes the times. God is the one who establishes kings and governments. God is the one who makes wise men wise and allows men to become knowledgeable about anything. Daniel was a wise man of Babylon, but he knew that his wisdom was not his own. He took no credit for it. And this is something that we can remember in our lives every day. All that goes on around us, God is in control of it all. No government is set up outside of his will. No king is removed without his sovereign involvement. It doesn't happen. We may not understand why God does all that he does, but we should understand that he is absolutely in control of all things. He has power over all things, and he has all the knowledge as well. Look at verse 22, where it says, It is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. All true knowledge has its source in God. He reveals the hidden things, and only he can reveal things that are hidden. Man's wisdom will never be able to reveal what God can reveal. 
no matter how hard they try. Daniel knew that. That's why he went to God to figure this out and why he didn't go running to the local library or do a web search to try to find out what was going on here. Only God could reveal this. Only God could truly give us the answers to life's problems because the light dwells with him. Only he can reveal it all. And for all that, Daniel is truly grateful to God. Look at verse 23. To thee, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for thou hast given me wisdom and power. Even now thou hast made known to me what we requested of thee, for thou hast made known to us the king's matter. Daniel knew how blessed he was. He knew that God had given him the right answer. How did he know? How did he know that what he had just seen in his vision was the king's dream? He couldn't compare it. Because remember, the king didn't give it to him, right? He couldn't remember it himself. So Daniel has this night vision, and he has such faith in God that he's confident that he can go in front of the king of Babylon and tell him that what he saw that night was the answer that the king was looking for. So now he goes, he can go to the king and provide him with the answer. But he does one more thing first. Look at verse 24. It says, Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and spoke to him as follows, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me into the king's presence, and I will declare the interpretation to the king. So Daniel goes and finds Arioch, the man that the king had commanded to kill all the wise men, and his first concern, don't kill the wise men. Don't kill the wise men. Daniel had been given time to reveal the king's dream, to, to see the king's dream. Um, and we don't know if the other wise men had uh, time. Arioch might have been carrying out these orders the whole time. Arioch might have been out there gathering people up while Daniel and his friends were praying. Um, but whatever the case, Daniel wants to make sure that the wise men are not harmed here. He has a compassion for them. So then he proceeds to tell Arioch to take him before the king. Verse 25, Then Arioch hurriedly brought Daniel into the king's presence and spoke to him as follows, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can make the interpretation known to the king. Hurriedly, it says here. Hurriedly is with great alarm. There is a mad frenzy here. Get this guy before the king. Rush him in before the king. So Arioch rushes Daniel in before Nebuchadnezzar, and I love what he proudly declares here. I have found a man. Hold on just a second. Wasn't it Daniel in verse 14 that spoke to him? Wasn't it Daniel that asked about the king's urgency? Wasn't it Daniel that asked the king for time to interpret the dream? And yet here comes Arioch. I found the guy. Politics at its, at its finest being played here, I think, by Arioch. So he presents Daniel to the king. Verse 26, The king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? So the king addresses Daniel, whom he knows by his Babylonian name, Belteshazzar. Remember, they were given different different names in chapter 1. Can you do this? Can you reveal the dream and its interpretation to me? I would bet good money that as soon as the king asked that question, you could have heard a mouse sneeze in that room. Can you give me my dream? All eyes on Daniel. It's make or break time right here. The kid, this kid, 18-year-old kid, comes in before the king who is already enraged and very furious with the wise men has ordered them all put to death, houses turned into rubbish heaps and all that, and he is presented as the one who can tell the king what he wants to hear. You get the picture here. If Daniel can't reveal this dream to the king, if he's wrong, he's probably not making it out of that room alive. All eyes on Daniel and what he's about to say next. And so we come to verse 27. Daniel answered before the king and said, As for the mystery about which the king has inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. The first thing out of Daniel's mouth, really, 
is the same thing that the wise men told him back in verse 10. There isn't a man on earth that can tell the king what he wants to hear. No one can give the king what he's asking for, no matter what their credentials or their education. Basically, with this statement, Daniel flat out tells Nebuchadnezzar, no, your wise men couldn't do it. No wise man can do it. I couldn't do it as a wise man. And that's where we're going to leave this till next time. I'm going to leave you with a cliffhanger. (laughs) So it's a cliffhanger, and you're going to just have to come back next week. Or you can read ahead, and I won't be, if you want to. You can find out what happens. But next time, we'll see how Daniel finishes his response before the king. And then we'll get to the details of the dream itself. As we continue on in Daniel again over the next couple of weeks, I really hope that we're, we're finding Daniel to be a humbling character to study. I know he is to me. I hope he is to you as well. The way that he has handled himself in, in this time of crisis is truly inspirational. He's a man of faith. He's a man of courage. He's a man who knows the right source to go to in the time of trouble. I hope that we can take some of these lessons to heart following the example of Daniel's life in our own. There's no reason that as believers living today that we can't have the same character, the same commitment, the same conviction, courage, and confidence that Daniel had in his life. Because as believers today, we have the Holy Spirit who indwells us and provides us with the ability to live a life that is honoring to God in all ways. It's for His glory. It's all about Him and living for Him. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning, and Lord, we just give you praise for Daniel. We thank you, Lord, for the the man that you used all those years ago, Lord, in such a mighty way. We thank you, Lord, for the the courage that he had and the boldness. We thank you, Lord, for the way that you um, used him to to provide us uh, to write down this book. And Lord, we just thank you that we're able to study it. We thank you, Lord, for all that you do uh, through your servants. We thank you, Lord, for the way that you use people mightily throughout history and in Scripture, um, and even the way that you use us today. Pray, Lord, that we would be honoring and glorifying to you, Lord, with with the things that we do each and every day to to serve you and to, uh, Lord, just worship you. We thank you, Lord, for uh, this time that we have this morning. We thank you for our time of study. We just pray, Lord, that you would be with us um, in the next hour as well as uh, we hear the word once again, and we pray, Lord, that you would just open our hearts and help us to to be able to uh, take your truth into our lives and just use that and apply that um, as we leave here today. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.